0: It goes great. I want to read the text and pray for us, and then we will begin. This is Genesis chapter 3, starting rather arbitrarily with verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return." the man named his wife eve because she was the mother of all living and the lord god made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them then the lord god said see this man see the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the lord god sent him forth from the garden of eden to till the ground from which he was taken He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for um, this crazy, ancient, beautiful, distant story. Uh, Lord, and we want to press into not just... Things too great and too marvelous for us. Uh, we don't want to grab at. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to grab at uh, the knowledge of good and evil, but we do want to commune with you and with each other, and we want to hear from you tonight. So stir our hearts, speak in ways we can receive, and be with us as we're with each other. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Friends, I'll just reiterate the two big ideas from Sunday and the good news, and then let's just, I'd love to hear what's stirring for you. Um, Really, it's a reframing of this. So, one, a reframing of who God is, and two, a reframing of what's actually happening here. The first thing is, men and women are not cursed. Men and women, as caretakers of the garden, uh, abandon their post, uh, some some say that the Garden of Eden is actually a temple, and Adam is the priest. So, kind of, there's kind of temple imagery happening all through this. And so, uh, Adam Adam has violated sort of his priestly duties, and now uh, all hell breaks loose. Uh, and so, um, what's happening is that the the responsibility and the authority that Adam and Eve were given has been compromised and thwarted because of their choices. And there's, and there's uh, consequences for that. Um, so the soil and the serpent are cursed because of Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve themselves are not cursed. First thing. Second thing is God is naming and describing, proclaiming the consequences here. Um, It's not, this isn't the enchantress putting a hex. God isn't putting a hex on creation. Because really, that's what we'd have to, we'd have to conclude God is putting a hex on creation here. He's cursing everything. Uh, Rather, God is naming and describing through Hebrew, the way the Hebrew mind worked, uh, the repercussions or consequences of these actions of Adam and Eve. And uh, I said two big points, but the third big point was this, that um, the consequences of the fall are things that in Christ we work against, right? And so um, the reality of thorns and thistles in the ground, we use weed killer, (laughs) right? Or organic solutions. Uh, the pains in childbirth, we use painkiller, and uh, men ruling over women, we seek to work against that as well. If you're going to tie men ruling against uh, ruling over women here as part of uh, the way God wants things, then a you have to say God wants things um, as they are. Uh, after the fall, and B that we should not do anything about thorns and thistles or pains and childbearing either, which is kind of a problem, right? Uh, and then finally, God is gracious here, overly gracious, in um, clothing Adam and Eve, and then keeping them from making their one bad choice, an eternal. Separation from himself. I think this is all important about how we see God and how we see male and females in relationships, and then how we see our reclaiming our creational identity in Christ and what's our responsibility there. So that's a quick summary. We could talk about any number of things. Each of these verses actually has really interesting scholarly kind of debate. But I'm just curious. Welcome, Joel. I'm just curious about um, uh, what, what grabbed you or struck you from, from the preaching? Like what, what was God stirring in you? Or what questions or conflicts are you having as you think about this text? So let's, let's spend some time sharing together.
1: Um, I get, I think I have two big takeaways from it. One, and this seems really absurd, um, but I didn't realize that people weren't part of the curse. Like you said on Sunday, like the land is cursed and the serpent was cursed, but like people weren't actually directly cursed. Um, and I didn't know that. Like I'd never... Distinguish between the two, and that felt like a really big deal to me. Um, where it was like these are natural consequences of what happens when sin and brokenness enters the world. Yeah. Um, and I fortunately, like, I since I did the Old Testament reading, even when I was reading it, I didn't pick up on it. And then you said that in your sermon, and I like had my sheet and I was looking at this, I was like, Wait, what? And I was reading back there, it was like, It doesn't, it's not there. Like, why do I think that? And why does everyone else think that if it's not actually there? Yeah. That was really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and then I think secondly, I don't know, something about the way that you told this story gave me this. I've, I've not had this. Um, I don't think I really struggled with this, like, angrily judgmental God. Um. But I think that the way that you presented this story, I just saw the compassion there and the like, this isn't what I want for you, but this is what's going to happen because of what you've done. Um, and something about the way that that was presented to me, I think the first time really realized that I have a shaming and condemning God. Um, so it's not like angry. It's not like hellfire and brimstone. Like I didn't grow up with that. Um, but this feeling of, um, not anger, look what you've done, but it's like, look what you've done. Like something's wrong with you as opposed to like, you know, this is, I, I, it was like, okay, I had never really, um, I think when I've, it was, it was I've, whenever people have talked about this angry God and I was like, well, I don't, I don't have you got that way. Like work. I'm good. Like, I don't. I don't see God as angrily and judgmental. Um, so realizing how false my, the other view is and just is damaging um, was also kind of overwhelming. Yeah.
2: Right. Like God is quietly disappointed.
3: Yes.
2: Just sort of like, ugh, just a little bit rolling his eyes at, oh man, here here she goes again. Yes. Yeah. I I relate to that God as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He's not raging. He's just,
1: no, and I don't think that I don't know why I hadn't really fully realized that before, but I don't feel like it's ever presented. And when people talk about God, either it's not, it's yeah. like you have an angry God or loving God. And I was like, Well, if you give me the choice, my God's loving, uh-huh. yeah. but there's also maybe a hefty dose of shame in that love
0: because the love's got to get something done, and how else are your people going to get things done if they don't have if they don't feel a bit of shame?
3: Yeah,
0: right. No, uh, Becky, that's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, The the word that came to mind as you were describing the shaming God, not quite angry, but um, not raging, but sort of an emo exasperation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like kind of the UGH God. You know, the UGH God.
1: You've done this again.
0: Come on. Right, right, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I think it's, so your your first kairos about like, hey, we just, we all are reading the text with assumptions and presumptions and lenses, right? And so we, we bring theology to the text all the time. We can't escape it. It's normal. I'm not saying we come to the text without a theology. I'm just saying we own it. We own our lenses as well as we can. And what you just described is the first Kairos says, I've always just like presumed that God was cursing, but the curse referred to humanity. Uh, and actually, the curse refers to humanity failing to fulfill their vocation. And it's, uh, I'm getting chills. It's profound because um, God has linked his creation to our vocation so that our choices and agency in that vocation like, impact the creation. And God's not going to sort of cover or manage or helicopter parent our bad choices. He's not going to protect us and save us from them right? And like, you know, in Romans 8, when it talks about how um, all creation groans for the revealing of the sons of men. Now we now we can hear that a little differently, right? Like creation's like, come on, humans, do your thing. Like you're supposed to do your thing so we can be set free from the decay of bondage. Yeah, it, it it's huge, right? And then two, I know this is hard because so the language, so I'm using. I usually use the NRSV when I preach. There's no best translation, but I find it to be um, uh, help. I, don't know, I find it to be a good one. Like God is saying, "I will put enmity between you. I will do this. I will do this." Right. So there is a sense like. In it's voicing as, like, this is a judgment of God. Um, but, but the question is, is the judgment punitive? Or is the judgment, is the consequences of these behaviors cooked into the sin itself? Another way to say that is, is the, does the transgression bear its own penalty? Or is God ascribing a penalty in addition to the transgression that isn't cooked into it? And I suggested Sunday that it's the former, not the latter. And the reason why I suggested that is because I I was wrestling with the gospel reading this Sunday. I changed it on Becky, like, Saturday afternoon. Um, Beck. Uh, by the way, I we send our text to Becky. Becky prints out our our uh, our scriptures for us. So, no, is that not true? Becky puts them together for us, and then Ben and Deb print them out. Uh, so Becky's a part of – Becky's in the chain of – she's got something. She's an important part. You should get to know Becky is what I'm trying to say.
1: I have all the power. <laughs> she's, she's got some power.
2: So <laughs> – we just print what becky says to print basically so that's
0: <laughs> so honestly choosing the gospel reading was hard i started with i started with the woman caught in adultery because i started with the posture of god coming in between accusation and judgment and and sort of declaring sort of this um uh like he covers her shame he leverages his honor on her behalf and he sends her out with a benediction of go and sin no more. Some of that's happening in Genesis 3. Then um, then I chose Luke 13, <coughs> excuse me, I believe, which is Jesus saying, do you think you're worse sinners than all these people that died over here? Do you think you're worse sinners than all these people that died over here? No. There's that text, and there's also the text of, um, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this person or their parents, that he was born blind? This is John chapter 11, I think. I think, or Luke 11. I think it's Luke 11. And Jesus says neither. He was born blind so that the glory of God could be demonstrated in his life. So there's two places in the Gospels, at least, Luke 11 and Luke 13, where this understanding of tit-for-tat justice machine God is sort of brought out in Jesus both times deconstructs it. And I think it directly relates to Genesis chapter 3. If God is a God who is like, well, you did that one thing I told you not to do and I've made a list and I've checked it twice and I'm going to find out who's naughty and nice. Like, and then he like, you know, fills in the box of like, okay, transgression... All right, everybody put in plan B operation. Like that's the God who that's the God who says, okay, you sinned worse, so the tire Solomon's is gonna fall on you. But Jesus deconstructs that God. So we have to hear Genesis 3 through Jesus, not through, not without Jesus. We got to read Genesis three as Christians, is what I'm saying.
2: Right. It, it relates a little bit to um, to the the thing that I ho- hope to have more time last week to talk about, um, where like the difference between ancestral sin and original sin. Ooh. And so, in the West, we developed. I mean, basically. Uh, Augustine developed this tradition of original sin, which basically says that we all have inherited the guilt uh, of Adam. And because we've inherited that guilt, uh, we have also then inherited divine wrath. So God basically pours out his wrath upon us because we've transgressed, right? It's a penalty. It's juridical. It's, it's a, we've broken the law, so we have to be punished for breaking the law. Um, but in the East, uh, they, they have something that is called ancestral sin, where we don't inherit the guilt from Adam's sin that, that provokes divine wrath. What we inherit it, are the consequences, the natural consequences of sin, which is death and corruption. You know, all the stuff that gets talked about in Romans 8. And so, and uh, the death and corruption that we've inherited from Adam's sin doesn't provoke divine wrath, it provokes divine compassion. God has compassion on us because we've inherited these natural consequences. And it's it's just a radically, for me, it was a radically different way of looking at how all this played out in Genesis 3. And how God deals with our sin today? Can
1: yeah. you unpack that more, Ben, about how how it sin is dealt with today?
2: Well, I, I think you know, going back to your your second uh, realization that that you have a quietly shaming, you know, sort of mildly shaming God. <laughs> you know, it's not raging and angry. Um, so I think I think that's part of it. Where we've been, we've been, uh, you know, we've been brought up to think that what God is. So if I sin today, like there is some guilt that I incur because I did something wrong, right? I didn't eat the fruit. That was Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit, but I, you know, am inconsiderate to my wife, or you know, something like that. I mean, this is years ago.
0: I'm much better now.
2: She's thinking about something. <laughs> Seriously. That was sometimes oh, that? Uh, she wasn't she wasn't listening at all to me. I was trying to make jokes <laughs> about
3: it. I'm in my own world, guys.
2: Some I think I think there's a wife who needs to be more considerate of her husband. Oh. Okay. But anyway, so if I sin, um like there's some there's some guilt there, but uh I think it's just been a a revolution for me to my imagination of what God, how God is toward me in the midst of my awareness of my badness is that I used to, I used to think uh, predominantly that he was disappointed uh, that, that I had to kind of get back into his good graces, you know, do some penance. Yeah. Jesus died for me, but, but God's still disappointed in me. So I've got to, I've got to kind of do some, do some penance rather than God being compassionate towards me. So I I think that's, that's part of how I see it playing out today. Does that help? I mean, that's pretty simple. It just makes it easier for me to repent. If I know that there's just compassion and grace waiting for me, there's not wrath. There's not, there's not like, I mean, there's consequences, right? Like my relationship isn't very good with my wife for a little while because I've been inconsiderate because she's hurt. Um, but that's not God's judgment on me. I mean, it's one way of, you could say that it's actually one way of talking in the Old Testament is that that is God's judgment. But that God's judgment is sort of baked, like Matt said, baked into the sin itself. That's just what happens when you're inconsiderate. You break relationship, and now you have to suffer the pain of broken relationship. But in the midst of that, God is, uh God's face is turned toward me with compassion. God's face is turned toward me with love. God is bringing me what I need to recover, to be forgiven, to, you know, to become better. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Those are really good, really good words, Ben. And really good uh, realizations, Becky. Yeah, I think it changes. We always need to bring our experience and intuitions of God back to Jesus. Yeah. What, el- what else, friends? What else? What else is grabbing you even from this discussion or from um, the scripture
4: itself? I was thinking about something. Um, well, I, first, I really appreciate what you said about uh, Matt, just with Jesus really challenging the theology that, you know, people were bringing to him. I think, um, I think we do see that in the old Testament too. Like, I think that's what Job's kind of about, you know, like, yeah, everyone keeps saying like, when you sin, like if something bad happens to you, it's because you sinned and Job's like, that's the whole book of Job, right? No, that's not the only reason that bad things happen to people. Maybe we need to like take a step back from just sitting in judgment on people. Um, that being said, I think I've kind of felt like as we're talking about the, the blessing and or not the blessing, the curse language. Um, I was really thinking a lot about like Deuteronomy 28 and book and chap and um, text like that where Deuteronomy 28 is like the blessings and curses chapter of the yep. old Testament. So like the first, uh, I don't know, maybe dozen verses talk about, you know, if you, if you well, oh, I mean, I'll just read the first verse. If you diligently obey the Lord, your God, being careful to all this, you know, then all these blessings will come upon you. And then it talks about all these blessings. And then, I mean, and then it does say like, if you don't, but if you don't obey the Lord, your God, and it's got, we've got like verses of verses of curses, cursed, cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the country, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flocks and so on. And so, I mean, similarly, I guess it's not that God isn't like cursing the people, but certainly anything that leads to the vitality of the people is being cursed. And I mean, yes. I think it doesn't trouble me. I'm not, I'm not saying it from that direction, but, um, but I see Deuteronomy as like an invitation of uh, be the people who Will be obedient, who will be a people who walk with the Lord. And the Lord will be, you know, will be for you. And I guess the Lord is for us even when we are in sin. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say like the Lord's ever, you know, not for us, like he wants to be. But I don't, know, maybe I just want to hear your thoughts on how maybe that intersects with those types of texts that are like, that do point to like obedience and disobedience and blessing and curse.
0: Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, most of these conversations, friends, we have to use the word hermeneutic to even have it. And what I mean by hermeneutic is, how do we go from what's written in Deuteronomy 28 to where we are today? And how do we understand what's happening there? That's what hermeneutic just means. How do we interpret this? How do we how do we appropriate it? Um, there's so many things that I, I'm thinking about Andrea right now. One of them is um, God's revelation is always an accommodation. So God's God's revelation. So for instance. Um, I've said, we've said fairly frequently in our table 101 class and in this Genesis thing that we think that the um, social systemic kind of uh, framework of patriarchy is not a part of the kingdom of God. That male dominance and male supremacy and male ontological superiority isn't God's design that there's something much more uh, of a mutuality, a communion, a oneness that God has in mind. But Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are written by people who are patriarchal and and has vestiges and images of that, right? Um, And so there's this interesting thing that happens where God is— Revealing himself inside of a culture of patriarchy, and he's not like, okay, before I can before I can reveal myself, we have to get a couple things straight. Slavery's wrong, polygamy's wrong, uh, patriarchy's wrong. Uh, uh, praying, uh, asking me to dash babies' heads on rocks is wrong. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't do that. He sort of condescends and accommodates to where people are and brings people towards himself from there in their own. So for instance, Deuteronomy 28, there, there is a, uh, there's a, there's a, I'm speaking about this as like a kindergartner, Andrea, I'm no old Testament scholar, but my understanding is that blessing and curse language is covenant language. It's suzerainty treaty language. Like it's the language of the day about how you, communicate commitments and agreements with each other. And so God is describing his covenant with Israel in the form and manner that, you know, Semitic people who lived 3,200 years ago could, could ascertain, could appropriate it. Like when he would, when this language is used, they'd be like, okay, I know what this is about. I know what you're saying. I get it. Right. I get it. Um, and so part of it's part of it's that like part of the blessing and cursing language I think is just covenantal treaty language that God is using uh not as like this timeless this is the this is forever and always the best way to describe my relationship with you no it's like okay how do I reveal myself to these people this is how I do that and that's a hermeneutical question and discussion. Um, so I think, I think that's super important. I think that's super important in the way I think about it. Um, I think, too, that I have a friend that says uh, uh, Christians, need, Christians shouldn't ever go into the Old Testament without a chaperone.
4: I would say that about the New Testament, too.
0: Okay, yeah, say more about that. What do you mean?
4: What do you, what do you mean? Well, I just think we tend to take a view, like, well, we, can, we know how to read the New Testament. We understand the culture of the New Testament. Yeah, okay. But, like, there's just as much distance between the New Testament culture as there is between the Old Testament culture, except that we do, we are influenced more by Western thought and Western philosophers than... Necessarily by Semitic thinkers, yes. probably, I'll grant that. But I think we we go into this like, well, once we're talking about the New Testament, then we know what we're talking about. But it's like, no, we need to grant that, like, we have hermeneutical, hermeneutical distance. We have di- cultural distance from the New Testament and the Old Testament. But I think it tends to be like within the church because we favored the New Testament. Okay, now, like, my card's coming out right, like, my love of the Old Testament. But, uh, but because we favored That's the what, New Testament so much. <laughs> and we've kind of like, Neglected the old testament, yes. uh, and we kind of take that the view of like, well, we have got the new testament figured out, but yes, yes, but the so old so, testament's like, well, that one's tough. And, and I we, do, I mean, they're both tough,
0: yeah. Both horizons are distant the Semitic horizons, distant, and the Greco Roman, Platonist, Neoplatonist horizons, dis- distant. It's all distant. I think what I'm talking about when I say a chaperone is. Um, like Jesus is the way we read the Old Testament. Like Jesus is our rabbi through which we interpret the Old Testament. And so we bring Jesus into a conversation about blessings and curses and, and hold those two texts I mentioned. I think it's Luke 11 and Luke 13. It might be John 11 where, where Jesus is. And, and you, you mentioned Job too. Like, so the Old Testament, I mean, I, so like, all right, this could get us far afield. The Old Testament has a way more complicated understanding of revelation and inspiration than most Christians do today. So Jews are much more comfortable with like arguments, conversations, and contrary, contrary sort of strands, you know, r- rolling together. Right? So you have Job on one side and Deuteronomy 20 on the other side, and Jews are like, "Of course, yes, hold them together, right And Westerners are like, "No, who's right? How do we make these all the same? You know what I mean like so we have this impulse to sort of make it all get along, and Jews are like, No, 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 not only is are both voices necessary, but you can't understand the truth unless you hold both voices in stereo so um, but but in addition to that, we need Jesus to as much as possible, like, bring him with us, because they're, you know, this could get us really far afield. Um, The people who first trusted in Jesus seem to think that they didn't understand the Old Testament clearly until they met Jesus.
4: And I think that's kind of maybe where I'm uncomfortable. So I don't want to get as far out left field, but this like really probably is my Kairos right now. So <laughs> yeah, well, we're going on the ride. Um, <laughs> like I, I I see Jesus as like the continuation and more of, I mean, like probably more of like the fulfillment language than like the contrary. Like, the con it almost feels like a contrary type of language that we're using. Like, and it is, Jesus is corrective uh, is, is obviously correcting things, but I very much am like, I mean, I probably take more of the view of like people who would say, you know, Jesus is revealing it more clearly, but he's revealing the same thing. And so if we say like, we're reading the old Testament and we're seeing a different God than what we're seeing in the new Testament, I don't think the early church would agree with that. Hmm. So, I mean, Marcion would agree with that, who was like an early, um, I don't know, theologian, philosopher, whatever, who was like, mm, down with the old, testament and down with parts of the new testament that are like too wrathful but i think you know but the the orthodox church and we certainly uh at the table like affirm the old testament scripture and so i guess maybe that's probably where i'm like feeling that tension and like that butting up of maybe just like the language of jesus giving clarity or like jesus is reflecting the god of the old testament jesus is the god of the old testament And if, and maybe I'm just like being too sensitive and hearing the oppositional, like Jesus is showing something that we've never seen before. Good thing we have Jesus now because we never, and in a way, yes, I mean, Jesus is super revelatory. I don't want to like downsize that. And so maybe I'm, I'm grappling with like, how do we clarify that tension, you know, within ourselves? I don't know. what
0: What you're naming is the work that needs to be done, Andrea what you're naming is crucial, important, necessary work. How do we describe the continuity and discontinuity between the Testaments? And how do we name how Jesus clarifies and amplifies what we see in the Old Testament? And I mean, I can, off the top of my head, I can name three ways New Testament authors try to do that. And they're all different. They're wrestling with it too. But yeah. Yeah, I mean there's ditches, right? There's ditches of Marcion. And then there's the ditch of no, it's it's just, it's exactly the same. Jesus has nothing to nothing to correct. And those those ditches won't do us any good. They won't do us any good. Yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, it's my Kairos too. I just want I want you to know that you're not alone. That's, that's also my Kairos. Right. And so how do we describe, you know, this phenomenon and how do we, you know, how do we talk about um, Yeah. I mean, how do we talk about it? I think it's a good question.
2: Yeah. 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 The way, the way I would name one of the other ditches, like the Marcion ditch is this isn't even the, this isn't even the same God, right. As Jesus. Um, But I, I think one of the other ditches is that we assume our reading of the old Testament is the same thing as the God of the old Testament. And and we try to we try to blend those with, with Jesus, right? So yeah, in the Old Testament, God was he was like this, and he was you know, and then, but we don't really know what to do with the fact that God's also like Jesus, and so we just say God's kind of both. But I think I think part of the language um, that's been helpful for me is thinking about Jesus, the clarity we have in Jesus. We allow that to shine light on anything in the Old Testament that seems confusing about who God is while still trusting that this is scripture and this is revealing something about the true God. But I just may not understand what it's revealing about God and bringing Jesus in here because, you know, the new Testament declares several times, like he's, he's the, he's, he's the clearest revelation we have of what God is like. And so if God is like this and I, and I'm, I'm reading this old Testament passage where it seems like he's saying this, like bringing Jesus into that brings clarity to those situations, right? So if I think he's cursing people in Genesis 3, bringing Jesus into that you know, may, may bring some clarity for me to say, maybe something else is going on here that I don't fully see, that I don't fully understand, and I have to interpret this Old Testament text about what God is doing through this lens of what Jesus has done and revealed about who God is.
4: But then I think uh, I really don't want to like take over the whole conversation, so we don't have to like stay here. We can you we know, to something else. But then I think about like Jesus does curse like Cana, and well, no, not Cana. Who does he curse? He curses, um, you know, like the say, "Woe to you!" No, I, maybe it's not cursed. curse. Curse is isn't the right, right right
3: language, but woe, yeah, right?
4: Yeah, and so I think uh, like. Part of it is, I've, so I've spent like a lot of time reading in the Old Testament, and so I don't feel troubled by the Old Testament. It's not like the Old Testament trouble uh, reading that I feel troubled with. I like see so much of like the compassionate God in the Old Testament, the loving God in the Old Testament, the redemptive God, everything that you see in Jesus, I see in the Old Testament. And so I'm probably like protective of like, we as a church need to hear the gospel in the Old Testament. That's like where my heart's coming from. I think my difficulty is because I've spent like so much time in the Old Testament, I'm learning, um, then, and maybe this is like, I just need to hear the New Testament writers more because I maybe feel like I'm feeling their struggle more, which is to say, now, what do we do? Like now that Jesus has come and like, then what does that do for our hermeneutic of reading the old Testament? Because I've like spent so much time of like read the old Testament and hear its voice because that is the word of God still. Um, and so then like, even if I hear you like preaching, Um, there's like, this cursing isn't happening in the Old Testament, then I'm like, well, then what about the New Testament when it happens? Like, I'm probably going to push back the other way and say like, but I see that happening in the New Testament. And then maybe that's like the conversation is like, but it's not happening in that, in that way in either, in either situation. I don't know. That's maybe where it's relevant to what we're talking about. (laughs) I don't want to totally derail us.
2: (laughs) No, that's fine. It's, that's really good, Andrea. I, I think those are the questions. Those are the hermeneutical questions for sure.
0: Yeah. And, I'm, and I, I'd much rather take a Jewish sort of trajectory on this rather than a, like a Greek trajectory. And I just want to hold it. I'm going to hold that incubate it. I mean, I consider you a gift to our community, Andrea, to help us hold that. And not just, not just patronize it, like not just sort of condescending, like, yeah, 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 but really hold it. Really hold it. So I really appreciate you pressing that.
4: Thank you to everyone for uh, creating space because I know like for some people, it's like,
0: (laughs) You you know what you're getting into on Thursday nights. You only have yourself to blame if you're bored.
2: (laughs) No, it's good. This is really good stuff. I've been watching Netflix. Just saying, it's always on, it's always available. Um, Yeah, other people, Joel,
0: Mallory, Remy?
5: Say a little um, I think for me, like, I've just been more, like, curious through this part of the text. I think, like, uh, the background that I grew up in is kind of like, here's some information. We don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> some of it's relevant. Guys are in charge. But we're okay if you get an epidural. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> some of it's, bleh, we don't know. You're okay here. <laughs> so I think for me, like, it's just been, like, getting to hear the different views, views that actually, like, have some meat to it that yeah. you can chew on and, like, reckon with. Like, I don't know. I feel like I can just finally not be, like, scared to, like, have that conversation with somebody when they're, like, what does this mean you're like ask me
0: anything else please
5: (laughs) yes um so yeah i think for me it's just been like being curious to be able to have these kind of conversations around this specific text
0: yes
6: yes Yeah, yeah i think i i'm i just it's good hearing mallory say that because i think for me i I so appreciate just hearing Matt, you, and Ben, you being up there. Um, like particularly when we're talking about beginnings, and you know, as we've been talking about beginnings and everything that goes around these these stories in Genesis, and naming the ways that not just naming the like, or not just saying here's a different way to look at it <laughs> than maybe most of us have been used to looking at these stories the way that most of us have been told these stories but also like from up front like actually naming that like here's the way that these texts these stories have been used to oppress and abuse people and and calling that out for what it is and and like obviously like saying that's not, that's not who God is. And that's not, there's something more going on in these stories than yeah. what we than what they've been used for. Um, yeah. and, and so not just, not just looking at them differently, but just, just naming that. And I, I cause I feel like for me, it invites me into like, even <laughs> repenting and confessing like ways that ways that I've been a part of that. Um, and I have like through throughout my life as a especially as a as a white male who's grown up in evangelical circles where there was a particular way of looking at these stories. I I used them to whether explicitly to, to tell women or not, at least in my bones I carried around this idea of this is the role that women are to play and this is the role that men are to play. Yeah. And I just, and I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, I'm just, I'm I'm really grateful for that.
0: That's great, Joel. Yeah, I feel a particular burden. I think, um, I mean, I I, I speak for myself here, but I know Ben has some sympathies to this as well. Uh, You know, when Becky or Deb or someday Andrea or Mallory preach, looking at you, ladies, um, you can you can uh, prophetically name things the way you want, the way God's leading you. But for me, in my house. I'm going to name things that I'm complicit in. I don't know how to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously and call out other people. So like I could use this text and call out other people. You know what I mean? Those people doing it wrong. But for me, like if, if I'm a part of a demographic or socio just group that has used this text to, denigrate or oppress or marginalize people i'm going to name it as a part of that group so that's just like that's my commitment to sort of uh take the log out and sort of uh and choose to associate with with the worst of my kind in order in order to show in order to be redeemed with them does that make sense But I I realize a woman preaching this text would preach it so differently, Joel. Which, now I'm wishing a woman had preached it. I'd love to hear that. But anyway, it it would sound a lot different if that was the same commitment. But still, I'm with you.
3: I think it's really important, though, that, like, it was, I've told you this already, Matt, but it was really meaningful, I think, for a lot of us women hearing from a man um, some of the things you said, because we're so used to hearing the other side. Mm -hmm. Like, this, I think, might have been one of the first times that I've heard that uh, men dominating women is a result of the fall. I've always heard this scripture about how. Um, He will rule over you as like, see, there's proof. Like that's the way that God wanted it to happen. And so your husband is going to rule over you and he's going to lead you and lead your household and submit to him. Um, And it's just powerful, I think, for for us, even though I know that you knew those things and believe those things, I don't know. And yeah, just the power of declaration was really important, so. I yeah it would have been preached maybe differently if a woman had preached it but it was it was significant for I know for me and I think for a lot of other women um in our community
1: I agree with Deb I think that it wouldn't have been as healing to have a woman preach it yeah,
4: mm-hmm. yeah I was going to add that I think um as a woman like doing teaching there's always this sense of like oh, someone's going to be like, well, that's just the feminist talking up there. <laughs> right. She's like, just being her, like, raging feminist self, so right. we don't really need to take that seriously. But to hear, like, a man say it, um, it's different. Totally. Yeah. I feel like it feels like an invitation to, like, be able to do
5: that instead of, like, here's proof of why I should be standing here Look, look yes. at
0: what I found. Look, <laughs> let <laughs> me be, yeah, let me be eloquent and beautiful and intelligent and persuasive and, and and prove that I should be here.
1: I think it's this idea of um, like having. I always appreciate it when somebody else comes to my defense for me,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, like, and I think this mm-hmm. is an example of that this happened to me last week during a conversation at work where I was in a conversation and it, we were disagreeing about something. And one of my coworkers who we have similar viewpoints on the issue, he was the one that like, we we were talking about the Kavanaugh stuff. And I was just talking about in general, I was like, I watched his hearing and I don't think he handled himself very well. And then my male coworker went off about what, what assault on women and like all these statistics. And it was like, you know, like just, went on and on about this and I was like cool I don't have to do this <laughs> like and so and it, it wasn't like about oh he's guilty or not guilty it was just trying to sh- like be like the reason people are so many people are up in arms about this is because this is so prevalent in our culture and so anyway like whenever a man is willing to make the argument so that I don't have to it's because it's exhausting yeah.
0: yeah I hear that I know I hear that I'm so sorry. It's exhausting.
6: I really am. Hey, Matt. And and also, I I think for me, um, I need to hear other white dudes talking about this stuff. (laughs) I, I need, I think I told you this at church a couple weeks ago, but like I, I don't have a lot of other white dudes who I've been friends with um, for for just most of the other white dudes that I know that I, that I've known for a, for a period of time for a long time don't talk about this so in a way that like models for me like how how do I how, how do I participate in this as well yeah I don't know if yeah but...
0: yep yeah. No it does man. it does. there's solidarity and sort of I'm not alone and like I'm not crazy and it, maybe maybe ending with this friends, like the reason why it's so important uh, not only because it's been used to subjugate and oppress women under sort of um, male supremacy. When I say male supremacy, I mean male domination and male ontological superiority. Which is a real thing. It's a real thing. It still is. It still lives. Right? Um, Not like that. I hear you guys say that. Great. But what's actually happening here in this text, you have a desire for this and it will rule over you. Does that language sound familiar? It should, because it happens again in Genesis 4. It's the same struggle that Cain's going through with sin, and it's the sin that wants to rule over him. And so what actually God is saying here is that the mutuality and oneness I've created you to have and complementarity, like actual... Hang on a second. Sorry, my wife just plugged something. <laughs> anyway, my my screen went away. Um, the actual the actual sort of complementarity with, without sort of these these hierarchies of ontology. I've created you to have this. It's being compromised in like rivalry, faction, dissension, enmity, strife. The enmity enmity between the snake and the offspring or serpent and the offspring is is emblematic to post-tree post, uh, of uh, knowledge of good and evil creation. And we know this because the reason why the flood happens, the sin that God names, isn't idolatry or adultery. It's violence. It's this strife. So we see in Genesis 3 that male and female now have strife between them. There's a power struggle where there was supposed to be power sharing. Genesis 4, and Andrea can check me on this if I'm wrong, but my understanding is in Semitic cultures, ancient and Eastern cultures, that the, the, the relationship of intimacy wasn't husband and wife. It was brother. And brother. This is why the Hebrew scriptures are full of stories about brothers breaking covenant with each other. It's like our Western stories of husband and wife breaking covenant with each other. Wives were property, brothers were blood in the ancient Near East. Right? So I like my don't mess with Texas mug, but I care much more about my wife because we're like in a covenant. Well, in an ancient mind, wife and husband was this arrangement that was much more like property and hierarchy than a brother and a brother. So we see actually in Genesis 3 to 4, an intensification of sin because it's striking to the heart of the most intimate relationship. And using the same language in Genesis 4 as Genesis 3 and describing this dynamic, like it's not God has set up males to dominate women. It's this is, the, uh, this is the sin bomb that is going off in humanity. And it leads to chaos and destruction and death. It leads to chaos, overwhelming creation again, Genesis 6 through 8. And the word that the Hebrew writer uses to sum it all up is violence. And the New Testament has lots of words for it, enmity, strife, divisions, rivalries, factions, quarreling. It, that stuff, Paul talks more about that stuff than he does any other sin, friends. It's the same thing. It's the struggle, this power, then relationships. So I, I, I just say that to say, I hear you, sisters, what you're saying and what, how it's been used as wrong. And I want to clarify it because of the wrongness. But also on the other side of the wrongness is what it's actually trying to do. You know what I mean? What it's actually trying to communicate is as is like more important. It's super important for us. Super important for us. Anyway, sorry, I got a little amped up. Just a little amped up. It's after nine o'clock. I'm not responsible for my choices after nine. (laughs) I'm usually asleep. Anyway, hey Ben, um, I'm gonna be on. I'm gonna be gone this Sunday. Ben's preaching this Sunday. I think we're pivoting to uh, endings, Is yep.
2: that right? Plan. We're gonna talk about the rapture.
0: Yes. Are we gonna have rapture practice?
2: Uh, that'd be a fun way to start. I haven't decided <laughs> how we're gonna start yet. Be- Becky's getting triggered.
0: Um, no, because Mallory, actually <laughs> I, I guarantee Mallory's had some rapture practice in the past. And she <laughs> knows she knows she's better than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs>
4: had rapture
1: practice but i have had a few scares
2: yeah i remember you sharing that with me becky oh goodness yes, yes. Trauma- traumatized by the teaching of the rapture Yes, yes.
1: i thought i, I was left know. behind multiple times
2: yes yes well yes we are we are pivoting uh we'll, and we'll uh we'll be talking about how uh the christian hope is not i'll fly away but we're here to stay so
0: Ooh, that'll preach baby
2: it rhymes
0: (laughs) you know it's true because it rhymes all right uh anyway friends great love being with you on, on uh tuesday nights and uh we'll be back here next tuesday all right peace everybody good night god bless